Welcome to the 2018 Prima Podcast Series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima Podcast, Joshua Trainer and TJ Sayers will discuss election security. Joshua is the Senior Cyber Intel Analyst at the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. TJ is a Cyber Intelligence Analyst with the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Josh and TJ, thank you for joining us today. What are the primary cyber threats facing U.S. election offices? Great question, Taekwon. First, as part of our analysis developing the CIS handbook for EI security, which is elections infrastructure, And then with the setup of our monitoring services, we have found a number of systems that are part of an interconnected ecosystem. This ecosystem is comprised of network-connected systems and components, and these are connected with uh, other devices to achieve their objectives. The level of interconnection, while providing various benefits, also introduces additional risks that must be taken into consideration when managing the life cycle of the device. Most network-connected devices will provide a remote means for accessing and managing the devices, which means organizations must make extra efforts to protect access to those capabilities. Network-connected devices do not necessarily have to be connected to the Internet, nor does their connection have to be persistent. As an example, an election management system, also known as an EMS, connected to a private counting network would still be classified as a network-connected system. Also, there are indirectly connected systems. Indirectly connected components are not connected to a network at any time and are not persistently connected to other devices. They do, however, have to exchange information with other election system components, including the network connected systems previously mentioned, in order to complete their objectives in the election process. This information exchanges are done using removable media such as USB drives or other flash media. While the risks associated with being connected to a network or the internet are no longer relevant, threats are introduced by exchanging the information with other devices, either through the use of removable media or a direct connection to another device such as a printer or an external disk drive. Now, there's a third non-cyber component that I wish to mention here, which are non-digital elections components. These are aspects of the elections process that have no digital component, but still make up this interconnected ecosystem. As an example would be the mailing, completing, and returning of a paper mail-in ballot. It is an aspect of the overall process, as it may leverage digital infrastructure to request that said ballot. Potential vulnerabilities in these systems are largely due to the interconnectedness between these hardened systems, which are very much akin to those systems in other sectors. Many of the election systems out there are built on or are related to common off-the-shelf hardware. For instance, voter registration is typically a database, election management systems are workstation software, and election night reporting are typically websites, so they are vulnerable to similar tactics we see affecting everyday systems. Great points, Josh. So to jump in right into the threats here, so the EII SEC in partnership with the MSI SEC, 
uses primary sources such as our Albert monitoring system to gather threat data. Using this threat data in aggregate, we found that many of the technical threats facing elections are very similar to those being seen in other infrastructure sectors. So for instance, I'll go through several examples. The first is malicious email. So first thing with malicious email we've seen is a lot of phishing. So phishing occurs when malicious actors masquerade as legitimate entities during electronic communication. And what they're doing is they're attempting to compromise those systems or networks associated with the recipient to gain unauthorized access to private sensitive or restricted content. Generally speaking, phishing is designed to socially engineer a response from the recipient, such as going to a malicious actor-controlled website and entering login credentials. It is also a common tactic with uh, phishing to use a sense of urgency to try to get the uh, victim's initial judgment to be clouded so that they click on the link or something of that nature. So a good example would be, you know, phishing indicating the immediate need to correct an error or meet a deadline or, hey, please transmit the sensitive information for a high-profile request. The next type of malicious email that we've seen is mal spam, which is malicious spam. So these are emails containing malware, a link to malware on a malicious or compromised website, or attempt to trick uh, users into opening malware-laden documents hidden in an attachment. So that could be a PDF or a Word document attached to the email. So that's the second. And then thirdly for malicious email are BEC attempts, which are business email compromises. So in this, what happens is, is the actor will attempt to deceive organizations into sending money or personally identifiable information, PII, or use the organization's name to fraudulently obtain material goods. Generally, again, these emails often originate from compromised or spoofed or fraudulent accounts which are used to issue a request, typically purporting to be from a high-level executive in the company to lower-level employees. These scams often use specific information about the organization or the recipient to try to personalize it, but generally are opportunistic in the broad scope of their targeting and uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. Moving on from a malicious email, we wanted to speak a little bit about web attacks. This is the second major category that we've seen generally affecting elections. So web attacks target vulnerabilities in websites to gain unauthorized access, obtain confidential information, introduce malicious content, or alter the website's content. So a couple of things here. Websites provide attackers with multiple potential attack surfaces through components like web applications, content management systems, web servers, underlining code on the website. A web application, uh, just to give a couple of overviews of what these things are, a web application is a function which allows a user to interact with the software via the web browser. So this might include something like filling out fields on a voter registration website. Next is content management system. So that's basically a software application used to manage, create, and modify web content. This could be pictures, text, or the layout of the system. And then a web server is, is the back end. So this is where the hardware and software that stores the information associated with that website. So one specific example of a web attack is SQL injection attempts. We've seen this, and these are basically attempts to input custom structured query language or SQL commands into website fields. This would be like a username or password field where someone would log in, and these are attempts basically to insert this custom command to gain unauthorized access to the information that's stored on the backend database. And then lastly, for the third overarching category is malware. We've seen a lot of generic malware, 
Two specific examples are things that, again, are affecting the greater critical infrastructure landscape and are not necessarily specific to elections infrastructure. And the first is Emotet. Um, it's been in the news a lot lately, and basically it's an advanced modular banking trojan and info stealer that primarily functions as the downloader or dropper for other banking trojans. Emotet is disseminated via mouth spam, which we just previously talked about as the second major uh, malicious email tactic that's being used. And then the second malware is Copter. Copter is a fileless quick fraud trojan and a downloader that evades detection by hiding in registry keys. Just a little bit on quick fraud. So these are types of trojans that are financially motivated and they generate revenue by automatically and repeatedly clicking on web advertisements. Again, Copter is another type of malware that's disseminated through mouth spam. And then the last little bit on this question is these two types of malware have both consistently been seen by the MSISAC and EIISAC's Albert Monitoring Program and have re repeatedly been in the top 10 malware that's been observed. It seems like you mentioned the ones that many people may think about when they're assessing threats to elections. Are there any lesser known threats that we should consider? Yeah, as you can kind of extrapolate from the previous question, elections in the United States are highly decentralized with more than 8,000 jurisdictions across the country responsible for the administration of elections. This structure, being such a, so disenfranchised and just uh, so decentralized, uh, this structure and the issues that come with it have been well-documented and known uh, well before the 2016 election. And there are several mitigating strategies built out and in place, such as like all voting systems are tested and certified for use. This includes uh, pre-election testing. All voter systems are securely stored between these uses. So uh, once the election's over, these are then put away in a secure facility. And then uh, on top of that, there's also contingency plans in place, just in case something does happen at the last minute, such as uh, maybe deleted voter records on accident or systems not working at that polling facility. On top of this, uh, there's training on the proper maintenance, deployment, and use of voting systems for election officials, the poll workers, and also the IT staff that is, uh, that is working with these systems. Right. So stemming from that, interestingly enough, many of the threats that nobody thinks about are not the technical cyber threats that we just previously discussed. Rather, these are concerns over things like misinformation, disinformation, public perception of the integrity of the U.S. elections. Much of the battle right now being waged is currently over the voting public's perception of U.S. election integrity, things of that nature. So for instance, one of the concerns is that an actor can get the public to believe that the U.S. elections have been tampered with or that any other type of, you know, miscellaneous activity has gone on that's unauthorized, unbeknownst to the voter, could bring into question the validity of that election and the integrity of the systems as a whole, even if nothing actually happened. So it could just be a perception issue. This could cause just as much damage, again, as if a real compromise were to happen. There are a number of organizations that have worked on this issue with election offices, both internally and externally, to raise the level of awareness in the voting public by trying to communicate legitimate communication platforms in advance of upcoming elections, the polling dates, polling information, so that they don't have to worry about having any information come from third parties, but it's coming directly from the legitimate source. Another big thing that we're seeing is that most of the people wouldn't think about is the increasing use of text messages and phone calls to, you know, campaign get out the vote operations, things like that. So 
We've received increased reporting on what appears to be information or misreporting, but it turns out to be the use of new legitimate communication vectors being utilized by campaigns and voter advocacy groups attempting to, you know, get turnout, get voter registration, and, and just this concept of getting the vote out. These potentially create voter confusion and the concern that there is additional targeting being made possible by this. So first is, you know, it creates confusion because, hey, I'm getting this text message or this phone call from this, this source who I don't know, and then this is reported to the elections office, and then it creates some type of misinformation issue. But also, the concern here is, is that these types of legitimate mechanisms that are being used to communicate with the voting public could be exploited by malicious actors in the future, though this has not been yet observed. So again, this could result in voters showing up in turn to election day, thinking, hey, we're at the right location, or we're registered to vote, and then finding out on that day that they're actually at the wrong location, or even worse, they aren't even registered to vote at all. So really, again, this is a perception issue removed from the technical side, and it's an opportunity to you know, spread this information or in instances where errors are made that misinformation is spread that most people really don't think about. Is physical security as important as cybersecurity in U.S. elections? Yeah, there's this idea that election officers didn't think about uh, cyber threats until 2016. This is a misconception. Election officers have always been concerned with cyber threats against their infrastructure as part of an all-hazards approach. Election officials don't just think about cyber or regular physical security, but also hurricanes and other environmental issues. As we mentioned, secure storage is one of the mitigating strategies that have been in place for some time. And just to add on to that, uh, physical security has always been and remains a consistent concern for election officials, as Josh said. This is evidenced primarily through the rigorous process that election offices follow before, during, and after elections to ensure that voting infrastructure equipment systems are controlled from when they're transported, set up, broken down, and then retransported if necessary. Some additional examples of this physical security would include, you know, tamper evidence seals, you know, limiting the physical access to the machines before the election and after the election, and really only giving uh, access to the public when they're actually utilizing those machines to vote. And then also having proper inventory and auditing of systems, again, you know, before, during, and after elections. And then, and then lastly, um, election staff also roams the polling places during these times. And there's also, in many instances, cameras that are set up to make sure that no uh, unauthorized activity or access is being, you know, placed into the facility. What are some of the best practices to consider when securing U.S. election infrastructure? Yeah, TJ, I think I can definitely answer this one here. Uh, well, Taquan, we actually have a best practices handbook that aims to complement efforts by state and local election offices, as well as efforts by the uh, federal organizations such as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, also known as NIST, and the Elections Assistance Commission, or EAC, uh, to improve the nation's election systems. This handbook looks at common components of the of the generic election infrastructure, how they fit into the elections landscape, and the risks and threats associated with each component. And it serves as a technical best practice guide that provides specific recommendations for these components. It includes a set of 88 critical risk mitigating activities that can benefit any organization and a set of technical best practices for users, devices, software, 
and processes. It addresses both network-connected and indirectly-connected election systems to mitigate the risks identified in the elections handbook. These best practices help improve the cyber defense of the elections and have additional information based on CIS's experience in implementing them, including the upfront costs. And furthermore, it provides a uh, case studies. It provides case studies on issues faced by states, including a description on how those issues were dealt with in each case. We also have an elections assessment tool that is built off of the elections infrastructure handbook that election officials can use to quickly take an overview of their security posture as it pertains to the handbook and then address those areas identified via the tool. What are some of the key resources available to U.S. election offices? Great question. Thank you very much. Um, so what we would point election offices towards, and they are well aware of, this is really good resources that are available. We're going to go through about five of them, uh, general categories, organizations that you guys can look into. The first is we've spoken about already as the EII SEC, where Josh and I are from, and the handbook that was released by the Center for Internet Security, our parent company. These both can be found on our website and give a really good overview of the elections landscape, what you know needs to be considered, and then it gives a lot of best practices that can be applied to this community to help mitigate vulnerabilities and threats that have historically for many, many years uh, been facing this community. And then the second is uh, DHS provides a plethora of election resources for election offices. One in specific gives a really good overview of many of the services that they have uh, currently available. This can be found on their website, and basically it goes through cybersecurity assessments such as you know, cyber resilience reviews, cyber infrastructure surveys. They have phishing campaign assessments, risk and vulnerability assessments, vulnerability scanning, and then they also have an evaluation tool, which is CSET. So this is kind of similar to the elections tool that's provided on our side. And then also they have things for detection and prevention. So this is, you know, their continuous diagnostics and mitigation program. And then they also provide incident response recovery and, and uniquely cyber threat hunting capabilities. And if an election office is experiencing an incident, they also have capabilities for malware analysis and follow-on assistance. They also assist in this resource, you know, giving an overview of information sharing and awareness with indicator sharing, providing cyber information as fast as possible. Their uh, Homeland Security Information Network, or HISN, uh, which is used often to share products and communicate in real time on election days, and then also informational products as well. And then lastly, in this, this resource, again, which can be found on the DHS Election Security Resources webpage, they provide cybersecurity exercises, access to FedVTE, which is the Federal Virtual Training Environment, and this is basically an online platform that election offices can have access to, and it gives them, you know, information on these courses and different types of topical areas in cybersecurity that they can, they can learn at their own time pace. And then spanning from that is the EAC, the Election Assistance Commission, which Josh uh, previously mentioned. They provide a lot of resources as well on their website. Some of them are like glossaries for IT terms, common cybersecurity terminology. They have incident response best practices, some videos to understand cybersecurity and the many offers that are available to election offices. And they also provide best practices, checklists for securing voter registration data, securing election night reporting systems, things to that nature, more information on testimonials and testimony that's been given to Congress, 
participations in election cybersecurity calls and statements also for election security preparedness. And a couple more things here. They have cybersecurity training. Again, they offer FedVTE access. And then they give link to other resources, like I just mentioned, through DHS and, as Josh previously mentioned, through NIST. After that, one thing that election offices have access to are, you know, think tank reports, things that come out through universities and other avenues that kind of give an overview of the elections landscape and give, you know, applicable best practices and things that they can be aware of. Some of these things might include communication uh, plans. And then lastly, this spans into the private sector component. There are tons of private sector companies that are offering assistance at no cost to election offices. Some examples include DDoS mitigation, email phishing and protection, flash monitoring, and communication plans, just to name a few examples. On top of that, I do just want to mention to uh, any election offices out there that have not joined the EII SAC or have joined and need or looking for access to this information, they can always reach out to the EII SAC and uh, go through that process, or, you know, we're always here to help. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Joshua, TJ, and Taekwon. Please visit the Primo website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Primo webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.